I tell you what, nobody would have been able to imagine God becoming a man to come down and redeem us. You know, I'm amazed because uh, all of these other religions, they have, a co- they have a concept of God existing, but basically it's all about you appeasing an angry God and the burden of salvation is put on the back of the individual. But true Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth that has this concept of God coming and redeeming man instead of you redeeming yourself by your own actions. That's radical. You know, I believe the reason no other religion has is, has this because I don't think anybody, the devil, no demon could ever anticipate that God would become a man and suffer our punishment so that we could go free. That is just not human thinking. That's not natural thinking. Only God could come up with this idea. No other religion on the face of the earth has any type of concept of God literally redeeming his own creation. And sad to say, this is what I want to talk about tonight. A large section of the body of Christ doesn't have any idea of that either. And they have put the burden of redemption on your shoulders to where you basically have to redeem yourself through your goodness and through your holy living. And that is not the true gospel. Let's turn back over to Exodus chapter 33. I started with this last night. Is there anybody here who this is your first service that you've been at this week? Could I see your hand? Well, we still got a lot of new people. Real quickly, I'm just going to summarize some things. I read Exodus chapter 33 and verse 13 and, and Moses said, now, therefore, I pray thee, if I have found grace in thy sight, show me now thy way that I may know thee, that I may find grace in thy sight and consider that this nation is thy people. He said, show me now thy way. The word way here means a manner of life. Or it's talking about, show me who you really are. What are you like? And the way you determine what a person is like is by how they act. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Proverbs 23, 7. And it's the same thing with God. You understand God by his actions. And Moses was saying, show me your way so that I can know you. And I really spent a lot of time talking about how that very few Christians have taken advantage of the relationship God has made available to us. Very few Christians really know God. They know about God. They trust somebody else to tell them, but they don't have this intimacy to where they have relationship with God and know God personally. And that's a shame because that's the whole goal of salvation. That really is what our Bible colleges are all about. We teach doctrine and things, and I don't have the words to describe this, but it's different. It's not just teaching, it's life experiences. Wendell will often point this out that we don't ask our instructors to come in and teach this and this and this. And we don't hire people to come in and teach a doctrine. What we do is take people who it's very evident that the power of God is working in their life and they know God. And we ask them to teach us the things that God has taught them that are life lessons, their main deal. And because of that, every person that's teaching in our school is passionate because this is the thing that they're teaching the thing that God used to change their life. 
Everybody's in their strength and in their anointing. And really this is what it's all about is getting people to know God. If you know God, it says in, uh, I believe it's Daniel eleven thirty two, if I'm not mistaken. And it says, they that do know their God will be valiant and do exploits. You know, you can't say that about every Christian. Most Christians are playing it too safe. They really are. They're afraid that they're going to make a mistake. I have people all the time. I had a guy contact me, one of my good friends, and he wanted to start a school. And so he asked me about it and they gave us a list. It was three or four pages of questions, which it's good to research and do things as well as you could. And the last couple of questions were questions that only I could answer. And so my staff brought it to me and said, you're going to have to answer these. And they were questions like, if you had it to do all over again, what would you do differently? And what can you tell us? And what mistake can we avoid? And you know, I thought about it and there's a lot of things I'd do differently, but I basically just responded by telling them, you know what, if you wait until you get it all figured out and you have every act dotted and every T crossed, and if you wait until you do it all right, you're never going to do anything. I said, if God is speaking to you, start. Get started and you'll learn, amen, as you go about it. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't take the advice of other people, but I'm saying some people are so cautious they want to do it right that they do nothing. And that's worse than nothing. That's worse than anything. I don't know if I said that right, but the worst thing you can do is be so cautious that you're always trying to get it figured out. I hadn't figured it out yet. We're inventing it as we go. We really are. And you know what? I, we had a meeting with our directors and most of our Bible college, the one here in, Colorado, in uh, Chicago, actually was started by some graduates who just went out on their own. And we gave them very little support because we didn't have any support to give them, but they just felt called to come here. They started the school. Now it's changing and we're taking more and more responsibility and we're helping more and we're getting better. But you know, I, I told our directors. I said, I'm sorry that we haven't done things better than we have. But I said, man, you, you got, you're a long ways ahead of where Jamie and I started. And I said, we're getting better and, and uh, we're changing things. But if we would have waited until we had this all figured out before we started, I would have never been in ministry. There has to be a balance here. You want to do everything with excellence, but at the same time, you can't be afraid. And the point I'm getting across is when you know God, God just makes things work out. There isn't a formula. We don't preach formulas in our school. It's about relationship with God. We teach doctrine and we teach basic understanding, but you have to know the Lord and let God take these truths and apply it. And so anyway, I could nearly re-preach that message last night, but you've got to know God. And then I started talking about the way of God. What is his manner of life, manner of conduct? How does he act? And last night, I really started trying to kill this doctrine that God controls everything. He's sovereign and nothing happens without his approval. That is not what the word of God teaches. And I I used a lot of things last night to teach that. This morning, I taught kind of the flip side to this, that God doesn't control everything but you're smart if you let him control everything. Amen. 
He doesn't make everything happen, but the only right choice is to just run up a white flag and give God absolute control. We use Proverbs chapter 16, verse 25. There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And so these are two, uh, they look like contradictory things. God doesn't control everything, but he wants to control you. He wants you to yield to him. And the smart thing to do is to yield and give God this choice. He will not force himself upon you. He will not make you do his will. You are a free moral agent and God will protect your freedom and your individuality all the way to hell. You can't make a person get saved. The Lord has given you a free will and he will not violate that. He does not force his will upon you, but it's smart for you to voluntarily yield yourself as a living sacrifice and let God take control of you. What I want to do tonight is to talk about what is the true nature of God. Those things I've already said has given you a glimpse that God doesn't micromanage and just control everything. But what is the true nature of God? Is, is God a just God over here and a holy God that hates sin? And I can show you scriptures that say all of those things. And those are true statements. But at the same time, it says that God is love and that God is gracious and that he's merciful. And you know, these things seem like apparent opposites. And let me just make a statement here that I'm going to have to spend the rest of the night explaining. This is going to sound wrong to some of you, but please give me some time and let me explain this. The word of God, if you don't rightly divide it and understand it, will give you the impression that God is schizophrenic. That God at sometimes is just angry and bitter and is liable to send a death angel and just wipe out people. And then you see Jesus who operated in love and a mercy. And you know, this is one of the reasons that the scribes and the Pharisees hated Jesus is because they were steeped in the Old Testament. They had misinterpreted some things and they thought God was this harsh, judgmental God that if you step out of line, the wrath of God's gonna hit you. And they were preaching that. They were very judgmental and they were very harsh they, some of you are going to think I'm exaggerating this, but I've actually read things about like the essence. These are the people that wrote the Dead Sea Scrolls that copied them out. They're the ones that raised John the Baptist. Most scholars believe that he was with them. And these people were so legalistic. This is not an exaggeration. You can get on the internet, I guess, and find this. Everything else is there. <laughs> But they actually taught that you couldn't work on the Sabbath and they considered having a bowel movement work and they forbid you to have a bowel movement on the Sabbath. That's how religious these people were. (laughs) I'm not quite sure how they enforced that, but that was part of their doctrines. And see, this is the religious culture that Jesus was born into that you could, they had it measured how many steps you could take on a Sabbath day. You can find that, that it says that Emmaus was a Sabbath day journey from Jerusalem. What that's referring to is that the Pharisees had determined how many steps were appropriate. And if you took more steps than that, you were working on the Sabbath day. When Jesus' disciples went through the 
uh, grain fields and they took some grain and they rubbed it in their hand. The Pharisees criticized them and said, your disciples do that, which is unlawful. What was unlawful about this? They considered taking grain and rubbing it so that you get the husk off and just relieve and uh, uh, only leave the, uh, the, what do you call it? The grain. They considered that work. And so that was breaking the Sabbath. They had all of these laws that were just so judgmental. And see, this is the impression they had of God. Jesus came and didn't abide by all of their laws. And according to them, he was breaking the Old Testament law. He didn't, but according to their interpretation that he did, and he would go out and they looked down their nose at any person who wasn't living as holy as them. And Jesus went into the publicans, tax collectors, who were people that were thieves. The Romans allowed them to make their money, but that the Romans would charge so much. And they said, you can overcharge the people as much as you want. And anything above what we demand, you can keep it for your own. So tax collectors were thieves and they charged people double and triple what the taxes were and were able to pocket it all themselves. Not only were they thieves, but they were Jews who were traitors and collaborating with the Roman government who was the occupying um, government. And so people hated them because they were tra- uh, traitors. They were thieves. And yet Jesus took a tax collector as one of his uh, disciples. Matthew was a tax collector. And Jesus went in and ate with them. And they said, what are you doing eating with these unclean people? And he said, they that are sick need the physician, not those that are whole. Jesus gave mercy and extended mercy to a woman taken in the very act of adultery. And according to the law, she had to be put to death. Jesus didn't say that what she did wasn't wrong. He didn't condone adultery, but he just said, he that's without sin cast the first stone. And of course, none of them were without sin. And so they left and Jesus said, does no man condemn you? And she said, no man, Lord. And says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He told her to quit sinning. He told her to quit doing what was wrong, but he didn't condemn her. He extended mercy to her. And this infuriated the religious people because they had a concept that God cannot tolerate sin. Sound familiar? There are some of you, let me just take some verses uh, for time's sake. I'm not going to turn over and read this, but you could turn to Psalm, uh, Isaiah chapter 59 and it says, God's hand isn't short that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. And there's many, many other scriptures that talk about sin separates us from God and that God will not have any fellowship. He's holy and he cannot fellowship with you and all of this. And because of this, there's many people that have interpreted that, that God is this angry God who is offering you forgiveness if you will do everything right. And you know what? That's impossible. And because of that, the average Christian will sit there and say, oh yeah, God is a God of love. But then they'll turn right around and say, as long as I do everything right. But if I mess up, God will forsake me. God will let me die of cancer. God will kill my children. God will cause a divorce to punish me and to do all of these kind of things to straighten my life out. And they'll teach that God is this angry God. And they'll somehow or another try and reconcile that with the love and the mercy of God. It's irreconcilable. And so if you don't understand the word properly, you can get this opinion that God is this harsh, angry God. 
and it hinders you understanding the true nature of God. You know, here's a real quick illustration. I'm going to say as quick because I got a lot to say tonight. But I had this horse one time that I broke. I didn't know what I was doing. This was a wild horse that they were going to kill. And I paid these cowboys $350 to catch these horses. They couldn't do it. The horses put them in the hospital. And, the, and I just was wanting to break these horses. And anyway, I caught these horses when the cowboys couldn't do it. And I, I broke that horse within 10 minutes. I broke its spirit. I broke everything. Uh, <laughs> I know some of you are horse lovers. I love horses. I've had horses all of my life. I didn't do it on purpose, but I'm just saying that this horse rebelled when I caught it and nearly killed itself. And it just barely lived through the thing. And as a result, when it finally got enough strength to stand back up, you could sit on that horse. You could ride. That horse was petrified of me and it would just do whatever I told it to do. But that horse got a wrong impression of me. And I mean, this horse, it was an Arabian horse. It was a mare and it would be standing there and it was real proud. It would be great. And it would see my green pickup coming a quarter of a mile away. And that horse would put its head down and just go to shaking like this. That horse was terrified of me. And I, I would talk to that horse and stroke that horse and pray in tongues over that horse. And I sang to that horse and I said, you got a wrong impression of me. I said, uh, you think I'm a bad person. I'm, you, it was something that I did. I'm trying to avoid telling this whole story, but I don't want you to think I'm mean. They were going to kill these horses. The people were selling the property and they were going to just have the horses put down. So I was going to save their life. I sunk a railroad tie in the center of the property. They would eat out of a bucket, but they wouldn't let you get close to them. And one of the horses, the the one I'm talking about, El Shaddai was this horse's name. (laughs) More than enough. And this horse was more than enough. It got more than enough. And anyway, it would eat out of this five gallon bucket, but it wouldn't let you touch it. And it had had a halter put on it when it was a yearling. It was three years old and this halter was constricting its muzzle and it was going to be deformed or if they didn't catch it before these people moved, they were going to kill it. And so I had to do something. I sunk a railroad tie in the middle of that property, put a rope around it and put the rope in a, in a lariat type thing, a slipknot type thing. And I put it around this five gallon bucket and put grass over it so that they couldn't see it. And I stood about from here to Wendell away from them. And those horses came up and stuck their head in that bucket to eat the oats. And I just flipped that over their head and caught them. But when El Shaddai recognized it had been caught, it rebelled big time. This horse took off at a dead run as far as it could go. And that rope just stopped and flipped that horse over on its back. And then it got up and for about 20 or 30 minutes, it was running in a circle and kicking and bucking and doing all kinds of things. And it was spewing stuff out of its mouth and out of its other end. And (laughs) I was scared. I thought that horse was going to kill itself. And I tried to go in and cut that rope and I couldn't get in there because it was going so fast. And I just had Jamie and I stood there and watched this horse. And finally, after this horse went for 20 or 30 minutes, it was worn out and it just pulled as tight as it could on that rope and it choked it and the horse passed out and laid down. So I went and sat on its head 
and put a new halter on it, tied it in between these two railroad ties. And when it finally got up, it was broken. Its spirit was broken. I didn't mean to do it. It just happened. But I saved this horse's life. I know some of you are going to criticize me. Don't, don't even mention it. I'm sorry for what I did. But I did save that horse's life. But you know what? That horse never understood what I did. And because of it, it was petrified of me. Likewise, God in the Old Testament was harsh and judged sin. And people think, well, man, how could a loving God do that? Because the human race was being so totally polluted that if God hadn't have restrained the amount of sin some way, there would not have been a virgin left for the Lord Jesus to have been born through. That's not an exaggeration. It was that bad. Sodom and Gomorrah was so ungodly that homosexuality was the rule. And it was destroying that place. And God sent two angels down and destroyed it. And people say, well, how can that be love? It's like a person that's got a cancer. You go in and you cut off a part of your body or cut out that cancer. And people think, well, that's a terrible thing to do. But it's an attempt to save your entire body. It's better to lose a part of your body than it is to die. And sin was so evil in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah, in the days of Noah, that people say, well, how could a loving God do this? It was actually love for the human race. It was love for you. If the Lord hadn't have done something to cut out this evil that was infecting the human race, the human race would have been so far gone that there wouldn't have been any redemption. Matter of fact, Jesus said this. Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be also in the coming Uh, in the days of the coming of the son of man. He's saying that as bad as it was in Noah's time, which was 1623 years after the fall of Adam, as bad as it was then, it will just be getting back to that way before the second return of the Lord. We now are are close to 7,000 years, 6,000 plus years after the fall of Adam and Eve. And so in 1600 years, it got so bad that in the subsequent 4,000, nearly 5,000 years since, it hasn't gotten that bad again. It's just now beginning to get to that place. Something happened that radically changed men submitting themselves unto the devil. What was it? God brought the law and judgment. You do this and I'll kill you. You do this and I'll smite you with the botch and the mildew and the emrods. It was wrath, but a lost person, it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Old Testament people could not be born again. They couldn't have the revelation. They didn't understand the things of God the way that we do, the way that we can. Not everybody takes advantage of it, but they didn't have the ability. They didn't have the competency to be able to get it. And so how did you, how did God get them to understand not submitting themselves unto the devil? Real easy. Do this and I'll kill you. (laughs) And you know what? Even people that weren't very spiritual said, I think it'd be better for me not to do this. They didn't understand. It's very similar to children. 
that, you know, when a child is very young, you're supposed to train a child not to yield themselves to the devil, not to be selfish, not to be angry, not to hit, not to hurt, not to do all of these things. And yet you just can't wait until the child gets old enough to explain everything to them. Some people take that approach and that's the reason they have such messed up kids. But you have to learn and teach a child to resist evil and wrong things long before they understand about heaven and hell and God and the devil and spiritual things. How is it that you do that? If you sit down with a one-year-old and say, now, if you go take this toy from your brother or sister, you're yielding to the devil. God said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So you are operating in selfishness. And if you do that, the devil is going to have an inroad into your life. And if you do that, you'll lose friends because a selfish person, people don't like selfish people. And if you ever get married, your mate, you'll never be able to make the marriage work. You try and explain all that to a one-year-old and they just look at you and they aren't able to comprehend it. But you know what a one-year-old can comprehend? Do that again and you're going to get a spanking. And they may not even know there is a God or devil, heaven or hell, but the next time they want to go steal something or take something, they'll think spanking and they'll say, no, they will resist the devil. And you can get a child to limit Satan's inroad into their life through fear of punishment. But that's only temporary. You don't want a 30-year-old thinking, is my dad around? Am I going to get a spanking if I go do this? You've missed the point. But there is a time that you use that when they don't understand, but then eventually they grow up and they begin to understand the point behind it. You know, I was raised on a busy city street And uh, my mother, my dad was always sickly and then he died when I was 12 years old. So my mother was the disciplinarian and my mother beat me. I mean, she didn't whoop me, she beat me. I got lots of whoopings. And one of the things was crossing the street without looking both ways. And if I crossed that street, I mean, I had better look both ways. And you know what? I got whooped over it. And as a result, man, I always look two or three times. I went walking yesterday and across all of these interstates and I went over to the De Plains River Trail and I walked 10 miles yesterday and I crossed a lot of streets and I guarantee you, I looked two or three times every time. In the beginning, I did it so I wouldn't get a spanking, but now my mother's gone. She died in, in 09. I'm not afraid of getting a spanking. I understand now why that spanking was there because it was for a bigger truth. And now I understand the real reason is to keep from getting run over. So I still do the same thing, but now I do it with a different understanding. Before we could really understand the things of God, God used wrath and punishment to restrain the amount of sin. But it's like some of these commercials on television. If you ever notice them advertising some pill, take this pill for your headache. And then they'll say, now side effects can be death, impotency, blindness, suicide, and on and on. And I think, man, give me my headache. (laughs) Let me have my headache. Why would anybody take this stuff if you're running all of the risk of this? Well, in a sense, the law did put fear in people and restrain them from committing as much sin. But the sin that they had committed had a greater impact on them. 
And this is what the scripture says in first Corinthians 15, 56, the strength of sin is the law. The law strengthened sin. It says in Romans chapter seven, that the law made sin revive and come alive and it killed me and it slew me. Most people aren't aware of those scriptures. They think that God gave the law to show you what you have to do to get right. No, the law gave the wrath of God. It put fear in you, but it also brought guilt, condemnation. It made you feel guilty. And basically the law was to knock you flat of your back so that the only way you could look is up and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It wasn't given to set you free. It was to bind you. The law was given to bind. And it was necessary at one time because the human race was getting so far gone that if God hadn't given something to restrain it, like I said, there wouldn't have been a virgin left for Jesus to have been born through. And so when the law came, you know, that was very short term or time after the flood of Noah. And did you know that the the world with all of the corruption we see in it today hasn't even come close to what it was in Noah's day? What was the difference? The law entered. And while I'm on this, before I leave this thought, let me just give you one other thing that will explain some things. Some of you may be aware that the law says that if your child talks back to you and disrespects you and doesn't honor his parents, you bring them to the people in government. It was a um, religious government over them. You bring them and they beat that child for rebellion. And if they do it a second time, you kill them. That's what the law prescribes. Smart off to your parents more than once and they kill you. That's what the Bible says. That's what the law says. And it also says that when you go in and conquer a place, kill the men, the women, the children, the babies, the animals. And some people see these things and think, how could a loving God do this? And it confuses them about who God is. And even though that was harsh on those individuals, it goes back to this same thing. Those people could not be born again. You couldn't have your nature changed. Once you went so far that you gave yourself to demonic powers, you couldn't be delivered. And it was a common practice in the land that the children of Israel went in and possessed that they were into bestiality. Everybody, men, women, and children had sex with animals. They offered their children in sacrifice to demon gods and they dedicated them to demons at birth. And those whole, whole uh, populations and countries were totally demon possessed in ways that you and I only see some people like that today. But the average person still has more morality and is more detached from it than what it was back in those days. Those people were, were having sex with animals from the time that they were little tiny kids. Bestiality was the rule of the day. They couldn't be delivered And so we think that this is terrible to go in and kill men, women, and children, but it was like a cancer. And God said, you've got to cut that cancer out or you will, you'll catch it. It'll it'll contaminate you. And as harsh as it was on the people during Noah's day, during Sodom and Gomorrah, it was actually an act of love and mercy for God to do that on the human race as a whole. He purged out this demonic stuff. Satan can't do something except through a person. 
And he had his people go in and just wipe them out. And if they would have followed his commands, they wouldn't have had the problems that they did, but they didn't follow it completely. And sure enough, those people that they didn't wipe out began to start polluting them. And the Israelites got to where they were offering their children in sacrifice to demons. So anyway, these things, I'm saying all of this to say that people look at it and think, well, man, God is this harsh God. How could you say that he's loving? It confuses them. But first John chapter four, verse eight says, God is love. That is not something he has and operates in. That is his core nature. He is love. And if you understand it properly, there have been times that he was harsh on the human race as a whole, but it was because he loved people and we were literally going to destroy ourselves and God had to cut this cancer out. And those who yielded themselves to the point of demon possession and just gave themselves over to the devil, there was no way to deal with it. That's the reason that you don't kill your kids today when they sash you because they can be born again. They can be forgiven. They can repent. But under the old covenant, you couldn't be born again. You could not be delivered of demons. And so you had to be very harsh with it. But we treat people differently today because Jesus changed everything. Look at this passage in Romans chapter 5. And again, I'm, this is a huge brushstroke. I'm trying to explain the entire Bible, Genesis to maps to you in one time. And this is a huge effort. But if hopefully you could take these things and use this as an outline and then go fill in the details and answer these questions on your own. But in Romans chapter five, Paul is talking about in verse one, we therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God. And if you read this in context, he's contrasting this with the Old Testament law that says you were right with God by doing all of these things and keeping all of these laws and observing the Sabbath and paying your tithes and doing this and this and this. And that's what made you in right standing with God. He has spent four chapters showing that that's not true, that under the new covenant, you aren't right with God based on what you did, but based on what God did for you through Jesus. And all you have to do is receive it by faith. So that's the context. And he says, therefore, being justified by faith, not by your goodness and actions, but by you just putting faith in a savior, you have peace with God. And then he says in verse two, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. And he just begins to keep talking about this and talking about how much God loves us. And then he says this in Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. People will take that out of context and they'll say, God loves the sinner. He died for the sinner. And that's a true statement, but that is not the point that's being made in Romans chapter five. The point he's making is that you not only get started by putting faith in a savior, Jesus didn't just die for the sinners, but the point is verse nine. And verse eight is a stepping stone to it. It says, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And verse nine is the point. Much more than being now justified by faith, we shall be saved from wrath through him 
And so the point is that if Jesus loved you so much that he died for you while you were a sinner, much more now that you are a saint, does God love you? Did you know that that is not the typical Christian understanding? People will sit there and sing about just as I am, God loves you. And we will tell a sinner how much God loves him, but let him get saved. And the typical Christian will start saying, boy, God's going to judge you. God's not going to bless you. God won't answer your prayer. God's upset with you. Repent or else turn or burn. And we will preach wrath and condemnation to a Christian. Some of you may not relate to that, but that's true. You know, if a person was here tonight who was drunk or high on dope or something like that, and if they were just, you know, totally out of it, the average Christian would go up to them and say, Jesus loves you. He's got something better for you. You could be born again and you'll extend mercy. And if that lost person says, but oh, I'm so sinful, God wouldn't forgive me. You'd draw on all kinds of things. Say, uh, Paul said he was the worst sinner of all. And he was an example. If God forgave Paul of murdering Christians, he'll forgive you. And you would just use all kinds of things like Romans 5, 8 to say, God commended his love towards you and that while you were a sinner and you'll extend mercy towards a lost man. But let that man get born again and come back tomorrow night drunk again. And many Christians who would minister mercy to him if he was lost would turn around and say, man, the wrath of God's going to come on you. God won't bless you. God's angry at you. God is separating you. You can't tell me God will answer the prayer of a, of a drunk. And yet you told him the night before that he would, you could receive the greatest miracle by just receiving Jesus, but let him get drunk again and see how the average Christian treats him. That's completely contrary to these verses. If God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, much more now does he love you. Much more, not much less, much more. And then in verse 10, it puts it all together in one verse. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Boy, those are powerful statements. Anyway, just for time, I'm going to have to jump down to verse uh, 12. It says, wherefore, as by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. You know, before I can go on, I've got to say this because most people don't think this way. But this said, death entered the earth through one man. That's talking about Adam. Most people think God is judging you for your individual acts of sin. And it's because you did this that God is upset with you. This says God's wrath came upon the human race through one man's sin. Death entered and all men died because of what one man did. You were born in trespasses and sin is what David said. And he wasn't born out of wedlock or something like that. He was just describing the human plight that we were all born with a spirit that was separated from God, dead in trespasses and sin. And your individual acts of sin aren't what made you a sinner. It was your sin nature that was separated from God that made you commit your individual actions of sin. Most people don't understand that. And so they think that God should have varying amounts 
of anger or mercy based on your actions. But from God's standpoint, every one of us have a sin nature, had a sin nature that was separated from him. And that's what sent people to hell. You know, when I lead people in prayer salvation down here, if you've heard me do this the last two services, I pray something and I always say, Father, I'm sorry for my sin. Singular, sin, talking about the sin nature. And yet every time, and I'm not upset with people, this doesn't mean that your salvation doesn't work. But I'll say, I'm sorry for my sin, singular. I believe Jesus died to forgive me of my sin, singular. And yet every time people will say sins, plural. Anytime you see the word sin, well, I can't say anytime, but in like the book of uh, Romans, there's 50, I think it's 58, 48 or 50 times that the word sin is used. And in all but two instances, it's not referring to an action that you commit, but it's talking about your sin nature. The word sin singular is referring to your sin nature that you have, not your individual acts of sin. Sin, not sins, but sin entered the world through one man, through Adam. And we all died spiritually. We're separated from God, not through what you did, but through your parents. All the way back to Adam, we inherited this sinful nature. In the book of Ephesians chapter two, it says we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, that the spirit of disobedience worked in us. Again, this is not popular in our culture, but apart from Jesus, unless you are born again, you have a nature that is part united with the devil. It is the nature of Satan, a fallen human nature. Every person who is not born again has a fallen human nature in them. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish and to be mean and to be bitter. They may be innocent. They may not have malice in their heart, but I guarantee you a child just knows how to be selfish. They know how to take things for themselves. They don't give a rip about anybody. They'll wake you up in the middle of the night and cry and I want this when I want it. That's selfish human nature. A child has it. A baby has it. Some of you are thinking, this isn't blessing me. (laughs) If you understood it, it would bless you because it helps show what God has done for us and how precious our salvation is. What a great price God paid. Many people think the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that one goes to church and one tries to live a little better life. That may be the outward manifestation of it, but no, it's much deeper in your heart. You become a brand new person. Old things pass away. All things become new. And you literally have the nature of God put on the inside of you. You have a different motivation, a different drive. Everything is different on the heart level. Now that doesn't automatically mean that there's going to be change in the physical because you got to renew your mind. Everything that happens in your physical body comes through the way you think. And even though you're changed on a heart level until you get your mind in agreement, there isn't going to be an outward manifestation, but you have the power and the nature of God on the inside of you when you get born again. So true salvation is more than just behavior modification and quit doing this and do something else. It's a heart level change. 
And that's true Christianity. And so it says that through one man, sin entered into the earth and death passed upon all men. Verse 13, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where, when there is no law. Now that is one radical statement. The word impute means to put to your account. It's an accounting term. Like if you go in and for instance, if you use a credit card, did you know when you use a credit card, they aren't actually, you aren't paying for it when you put your credit card down and buy something. But it has a, you know, that magnetic strip on it. It has your information. And when you do that, what they do, they send a bill to the credit card company and then the credit card company sends you a bill and you actually pay for it later when you get your credit card bill. When you put your credit card down, all you did was have that imputed unto you, but it's not done yet, but it's put on your account. It's held against you. That's a modern day illustration of what the word impute means. And it says that before the law came, God wasn't imputing people's sins unto them. Now that's radical. That is radical to the max. This is different than probably the vast majority of people in here have thought about God. Most of us were taught that the moment Adam and Eve sinned, that God got mad, kicked them out of the garden because holy God could not fellowship with unholy man. And there was an immediate separation and immediately God's wrath started falling on people. That's not what the word teaches. It says that until the law, that's the time of Moses, nearly 2000 years after the fall of Adam and Eve, until that time, God wasn't imputing or holding people's sins against them. Now that's on an individual basis. I've already mentioned two exceptions, Sodom and Gomorrah and the flood in the days of Noah. But that was actually God cutting out this sin. It had just gotten so rampant that if he didn't do something, the entire human race was going to be destroyed. And so in a surgical move, he cut, he did judge those. He was faithful. He was just in doing it. But as a whole on individuals, he wasn't imputing their sins unto them. For instance, you can find in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, right after Adam and Eve sinned, Cain killed Abel. And when he did that, God said, what have you done? And he says, your brother's blood is crying unto me. And he says, from henceforth, the earth isn't going to yield its strength unto you. It's going to bring forth briars and you aren't going to have the crops produced the way that they used to. And it says that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and left. God didn't leave him. You know, normally when I teach this, I've got a teaching on this and I just hadn't got time to go into it. But if you would use your brain for something besides a hat rack and read the book of Genesis, God was talking to Cain in an audible voice. See, most people think that when Adam and Eve sinned, God just drove them out of the garden because he couldn't stand them. But in Genesis chapter three, I believe it's verse 22. It says he sent them out of the garden so that, that they couldn't eat of the tree of life and live forever. He didn't want man living forever in a sinful, corrupted body. He had something better planned. Did you know that actually since sin has entered the human race, death is a blessing. Some of you may not understand that, but if you couldn't die, just think of Hitler, Mussolini, Genghis Khan, 
take all of the people in history that have just given themselves over to the devil and have destroyed things. What would happen if you couldn't kill somebody? What if they couldn't die? What if every evil person and every evil thing that has ever been done on the face of the earth was still here? That'd be terrible. My mother, when she, she was 96, when she died and you know what? She didn't want to live. I said this last night. She was saying, Andy, are you praying that I'll die? She wanted out of here because we had something better. We've got something better planned and it's not good to live forever. Although nobody's excited about dying, you need to recognize that through Jesus, we've got something so awesome that Paul said, I'm in a great strait between two. I have a desire to depart, but I'm going to stay here because it's necessary for you. Death is an enemy, but because of our fallen world, death is better than living forever. Could you imagine a person who was born, say, mentally retarded or whatever the, you know, the politically correct word. I don't mean any offense by that, but whatever you're supposed to say. A person who's born without the ability to think and function and you were going to live that way forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. 10,000 years from now, your mother would still be having to take care of you and change your diaper. Can you imagine living like that? Can you imagine a person living with blindness and deafness and pain and all of the things that we have and never being able to get over it, never being any escape? There never being a heaven where all of those things have passed away. The Lord didn't want us living forever in a sinful body subject to all of this stuff. And he drove man out of the garden, not because he rejected them, but because he didn't want us living forever in a fallen state. He had something better planned. And in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, you can find God still walking and talking with man. He met with Adam and Eve. He met with Cain and Abel. He showed that he accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. How did he show that? Well, if you take the context, he was talking to him. He was talking to him in an audible voice. What was the difference between the Garden of Eden and the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis? The only difference was the location, but God was still merciful to him. As a matter of fact, when Cain killed his brother, the Lord told him the consequences, that there are consequences to your actions, but did you know he still loved him and he was still merciful to him? Because Cain says, everybody that's going to hear about this is going to seek to kill me. And so God put a mark on Cain and said, if anybody touches Cain, I'll avenge his death sevenfold. God protected the first murderer in the history of the world and and gave him mercy. You know why? Because until the law came, he wasn't imputing our sins unto us. He was operating in mercy because that is the true nature and character of God. He wanted to be merciful. But men began to take God's lack of punishment as acceptance and approval. And they just began to start giving themselves over to the devil. And even though God wasn't bringing judgment, I describe it this way, like there is a vertical and a horizontal effect of sin. God wasn't bringing this vertical judgment. He was being merciful to people's sins, but there still was a horizontal effect. Every time you yield yourself to sin, Romans 6, 16 says, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey his servants. You are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. When you yield to sin, you yield yourself to Satan, the author of that sin 
And he comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. John 10, 10 says that. So even though God wasn't bringing his punishment, sin still had consequences and Satan was destroying the human race through sin. So God had to put a restraint upon sin to preserve the human race until Jesus could come and bring our redemption. How did he do that? Through the fear, the punishment, the restriction of the law. But that had these side effects of making us guilty and condemned and running from God instead of running to God. But you can see in the fourth chapter, right after Cain got by with murder, his great, great grandson, who was named Lamech, he was the first person that ever had two wives. He was the first person to operate in polygamy. And he told his two wives, he says, I have killed a man to my wounding and slain a man to my hurt, which is old English for he killed a person in self-defense. And he was saying that my murder of a person was more justified than Cain's because it was self-defense. It wasn't malicious. And so he said, if God avenged Cain sevenfold, he will avenge Lamech 70 and sevenfold. God didn't say that. Lamech said it. Lamech was supposing basically that, well, Cain got by with murder and God didn't punish him. So my murder is less of an offense than his. It's more justified. So if Cain got by with it, certainly I'm going to get by with it. The scripture says that we comparing ourselves among ourselves and measuring ourselves by ourselves are not wise, but this is what people do. And we think, well, this person, they're homosexual and they're still famous and everybody loves them. And you know what? Uh, They're a rock star. They're a musician. They're a movie star whatever. And man, look how they're prospering. And so it must not be really bad. How did God bring us out of that deception? He, he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, man, killed all of them. And you know what? All of a sudden people thought, Oh man, maybe God isn't pleased with this. God started saying thou shalt not and started bringing judgment. It never was God's plan. God, if he wanted to just institute the law and start showing his wrath and displeasure for people, he could have done it with Adam and Eve, but he didn't. He extended mercy. Did you know that Adam, I mean, not Adam, but Abraham violated the principles of God in Leviticus chapter 18. Now that wasn't written yet. The law wasn't in effect in Abraham's time, but Leviticus 18 says, if you marry a half sister, that it's an abomination, a sexual abomination, and you're to be killed, put to death. And if you don't kill them, you get killed. It's an absolute sexual abomination and we have to cleanse and purge ourselves from it. Abraham married his half-sister, Sarah. If the law would have been in effect, he would have been killed. And yet, God said he was his friend. He's the only person called the friend of God until the new covenant. And Abraham was used of God and blessed by God. And he was living in a sexual perversion. Somebody said, well, that law wasn't given yet. But the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He always thought it was wrong. He just hadn't given the law yet, but it was wrong. Did you know that uh, Jacob came along and married two sisters while the other sister was still alive? And according to Leviticus 18, that's a sexual abomination. You have to kill him. And yet 
Jacob wrestled with an angel of God and prevailed. You know why? Because God wasn't imputing his sins unto him. He wasn't holding them against them. God was operating in mercy towards people. But people begin to take God's lack of punishment as approval. And so they just dropped all of their guard. They started living in sin. And even though this vertical effect wasn't coming on sin, the horizontal effect, Satan was destroying the human race. And God had to do something to limit our sinning so that he could limit Satan's access to us so that he could preserve us and keep us alive until Jesus came. And so he gave the law and it released wrath and punishment and it, and it accomplished its task. It put fear in us and it restrained the amount of sin, but it actually amplified the sin and made those of us who were under the law guilty and condemned to the max. You know, my own personal testimony could illustrate this because like I, I told you, I got born again when I was eight years old. When I was 18, I made an absolute commitment to the Lord and I have never said a word of profanity in my 62 years. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I was Mr. Righteous. I was doing all of these things. And many of you went out and sexual sins were just normal for you. You did dope. You did uh, alcohol. You may have robbed. You may have done jail time. You may have done all kinds of things that I haven't done. But I bet you there's not a person in here that was as guilty and condemned as I was because I was under the law. Like I told you, I, I used to have a dream that I'd smoked a cigarette and went to hell. And I, I mean, I would wake up at least every six months with this dream in a cold sweat, just fearful that I was in hell because I had smoked a cigarette. I just dreamed about it. I would go into a restroom and see profanity and ungodly things scribbled on a bathroom stall. And I would spend for a week. I was guilty because I'd seen it. I didn't write it. I just saw it, had the thought come through my mind and I would go around and feel like God was upset. I, some of you think, boy, you were weird. That's what religion will do to you. That's what the law will do to you. I may not have done the things that you've done, but I felt more ungodly than just about any person I know of. The law restrain me from doing certain things and I praise God for it because you know what? I don't have to deal with some of the memories and some of the physical things that some of you who did other things did. And so there was benefit to it. But I also was probably more condemned and felt more displeasure from God in my own way of thinking. It was me condemning myself than many of you who went out and just lived a sorry life. The law makes sin come alive. And it was only temporary. You know, I'm running out of time tonight. I've got to stop. But... What I'm explaining to you is about the nature of God. The nature of God is love. When man sinned against him, he drove him out of the garden, not out of rejection, but out of love for them because he didn't want us living forever. He gave mercy to the first murderer. He took a man who was living in something that was against his standards and he blessed Abraham and made him the father of faith. He blessed Jacob and he blessed these people and didn't impute their sins unto them. And actually when Moses came along, if you study closely the book of Exodus, God had the uh, children of Israel prepare themselves and go on a fast 
And then he set bounds around Mount Sinai. And he came down and wanted to speak to them face to face. He wanted to go back to the way it was in the Garden of Eden where he talked to people audibly, person to person. And he came down on the mountain and there was fire and there was smoke and there was an earthquake. And then there was a sound of a trumpet and then an audible voice of God. And God started speaking to the entire Jewish nation and bringing them back to this intimacy that he wanted to have. And they were not the best group of people. And yet God in mercy was revealing himself to the nation and the people stuck their fingers in their ears and yelled at Moses and said, stop God from talking to us. We can't bear it. And they said, we don't want him to speak to us. You let him speak to you and then you come tell us. Their own conscience condemned them and they rejected God. And it was after that, that he gave the law. It was not his first choice. It was an afterthought and Galatians chapter three says it was only temporary until faith should come. And we are now delivered from the law. And so the nature of God, the nature of God was always love. And there was times that he was harsh, just like I was giving that story about that horse I did some things that hurt that horse and that horse became afraid of me. But you know what? I actually saved its life by doing it. And it wasn't me that hurt that horse. It was that horse's reaction to what I did. If he had just stood still and let me catch him and change his halter, everything would have been fine. But his wild nature rebelled at any type of restriction. And he's the one, she's the one that hurt herself and did all of this to her. And she got a totally wrong impression of me. Many Christians have a totally wrong impression of God thinking he's wrath and harsh and a mean God, but there is a justification for all of it. If you understand that God was not imputing man's sins unto them until the law came. And it says where there is no law, there is no transgression. We've been delivered from the law and God is not holding your transgressions against you today. God is not judging you the way he did in the old covenant. Second Kings chapter one, Elijah called fire down out of heaven and killed 102 men. Jesus' disciples wanted to do the same thing and they were more justified. Elijah just did it on a whim. He eventually went with the, the men and God protected him and he didn't have to do it, but he just called fire down out of heaven and killed 102 men. Second Kings chapter one. Jesus' disciples tried to do the same thing in Luke chapter nine. And he turned around and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. The son of man did not come to destroy man's life, but to save it. That says that if Jesus would have been present, if the new covenant would have been operating in second Kings chapter one, Jesus would have rebuked Elijah for what he did. It was okay at the time because they were under the wrath and the punishment of God. And that was the covenant that they were under, but we have a better covenant and God doesn't treat people the way that he did under the old covenant. I know that this is offensive to a lot of people because they say the only difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is one page, (laughs) one blank page. It's all the word of God. Well, yes, it's the word of God and we can learn from it and see how he dealt with people and the standards haven't changed. God still doesn't want us to live ungodly, 
But the punishment and the rejection and the wrath has been all placed upon Jesus. And if you are feeling wrath, then it's because you aren't honoring the sacrifice that was made for you. You are still living under an Old Testament mentality and we've got a brand new covenant that was established upon better promises. And now the true nature of God, which was love, God is love, is now manifest towards us. And if you could understand that, I guarantee it would change everything. I've tried quickly tonight to summarize the entire Bible and show you that the nature of God is love. And even though there was times that he dealt harshly with people, it was always motivated out of love for the human race as a whole. And it was an attempt to bring us and reconcile us unto himself. And God is a merciful, kind God. And now that the atonement has been made, we now are receiving this fullness of God's mercy. And God is not angry at you. It says in Isaiah chapter 54, I believe verse nine, that just like the covenant that he made with Noah, that he would never destroy the earth with a flood. So as he sworn that he would never be angry with you, nor rebuke you that the heavens might depart and all of these things, but his wrath, his covenant of peace will never depart from us. And yet I can guarantee you, probably most people sitting in here have felt like God was angry with you, like God was displeased and God rebuked you. And yet the Bible says he'll never do it. God's not the one rebuking you and making you feel ungodly. It's the Old Testament law. That was the function of the Old Testament law to make you so sick of yourself that you'd call out for help and salvation. And if you are condemned and feeling guilty, it's because you are still under the old covenant law and don't understand that we've been redeemed from it. You don't understand the true nature of God. People have misunderstood the true nature of God, just like that horse misunderstood my actions. But I tell you, God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do that'll make God not love you. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And somebody says, oh man, this is great news. I can just go live like the devil. You ought to get born again. Because the Bible says, 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, every man, not most, not some, every person that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. If you truly are born again, you've got the nature of God and a desire to live for God. Now you may be doing a poor job of it because the law will actually make sin have dominion over you. If you are thinking you've got to do this and this and this to please God, it's a recipe for failure. I hadn't got time to explain that, but it's absolutely true. So you may be living a, an immoral life, but if you are truly born again, you want to live for God. And hearing the truth doesn't set you free to sin. It will set you free from sin. It'll make you so thankful that you'll want to dedicate the rest of your life and everything you've got to God. A person who would take what I'm saying and say, man, this is great news. I can go live in sin. You ought to get born again. You got a sinful nature. You have not been changed at your heart level. You've only got into behavior modification. You're only trying to do what's right because you feel like you have to do that to earn God's favor. 
your heart wasn't changed. If you've truly been born again, you have a desire to live for God. And this truth will set you free from sin, not free to sin. Man, that's good news. I tell you, God loves us. And this is one of the ways of the Lord that you've got to understand that God is a merciful God. And even though there was a time that he brought judgment, it, God at his core is merciful and his wrath has now been satisfied through Jesus bearing that punishment for us. And God loves you unconditionally. He is not holding your sin against you. He's not marking these things. He's not imputing sin unto you because you are not under the law, but under grace. Isn't that great news? That's the good God that we serve. Hallelujah. Man, let's just praise God for that. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to bear our sin and redeem us out from under this law. Thank you that you are being merciful. Thank you that you love us and there's nothing we can do to stop it. There's nothing we can do to make you love us more. Nothing we can do to make you love us less. Thank you, Father, for your goodness, your grace towards us. I just pray that the Holy Spirit take these few things that I've said and Father, make it come alive that people begin to understand and put this together so that there's not any misunderstanding about your actions and your nature that would make us feel that you are the one that's causing the hurt and the pain in our life. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love for us. Father, thank you that you've forgiven all of my sin, past, present, and even future sins. They've all been forgiven. Thank you for your mercy towards me. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We just agree and we receive it. And thank you. We receive this truth tonight and believe it's going to change our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise God. You know, I've got a teaching, a book and a teaching series, CD, DVD on the true nature of God that will teach about six hours worth on what I spent one hour on tonight. And I'd encourage you to get that. And I've got a lot of other things that go along with this that would help you. If there's anyone here tonight who doesn't know Jesus personally, this would be a great time for you to be born again. I explained that it's not just changing your behavior. It's your core, your spirit man was separated from God. It was born in trespasses and sins. And true Christianity isn't just changing your behavior. It's getting a new heart. It's having God change you on the, on the heart level. If you haven't received that, you can receive that tonight. You might be a person that goes to church and tries to be a good person, but that doesn't make you a Christian. Sitting in a church won't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage and make you a car. Amen. You got to be a car. You got to be born again and then go to church as a result. Also, if you've been born again, but if you don't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and this gift of speaking in tongues, I guarantee you, you need it. And I know that there's many people that disagree with that. There's some people that think I got it all when I got born again. That's not what the Bible teaches. They had a separate experience. After they were born again, the Lord told them to tarry until the Holy Spirit was given. Acts chapter two, when the Holy Spirit was given, they spoke with tongues. It's like a pair of tennis shoes. When you get them, they all come with tongues. Amen. The baptism of the Holy Spirit comes with this gift of tongues. 
Somebody says, do you have to have the Holy Spirit? Are you saying you have to have the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? No, you can still go to heaven without the Holy Spirit and you can even get there quicker because you aren't going to have power. You'll die of something along the way. You can still go to heaven without the Holy Spirit, but why would you want to? God gave you the power of the Holy Spirit. This gift of speaking in tongues is so powerful. It would really help you. If you don't have that gift, and you may say, well, I I believe I have the Holy Spirit. Do you speak in tongues? If you don't speak in tongues, you should be speaking in tongues. It'll help you. It'll change you. Is there anybody here who'd say, man, I'd like to receive this gift of speaking in tongues or I need the ba- I need salvation. Anybody here, if that's you, I want you to raise your hand if you need one of those two things. Praise God, we still got people. We've had over a hundred and something people receive, but there's still people ready to receive. Isn't that good? Thank you, Jesus. If you raised your hand or if you were too chicken to raise your hand, but you should have, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward and we want to pray with you and help you to receive. Let's praise God for these. Amen. Hallelujah. If you raised your hand, just come forward and let us minister to you. Thank you, Jesus. lady down here, what was it you were healed of? Was it leukemia? Isn't that awesome? She got hold of the word of God and was healed of leukemia. According to the doctors, that's incurable. They can't do anything for leukemia, but she's been given a clean bill of health. And she says, I've always wanted the Holy Spirit. Could you pray with me? And I said, we certainly can. Isn't that great? Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else here want to receive? Praise God. You know, I know in my heart that there's some people out there thinking, well, I've tried this before and it just doesn't work. I wished I could speak in tongues, but I just can't do it. You're thinking, I don't even want to go up there and be disappointed again. I tell you, I would encourage you to go ahead and come. For one thing, I'm going to give every person here a book. Nobody had more problems speaking in tongues than I did. I was taught that it was of the devil. I had so much fear in me that something was going to happen. And because of it, I struggled for three and a half years after I received the Holy Spirit before I spoke in tongues. But I've written all these things in a book and I'll give it to you. So if if you've struggled with this, you ought to come and just receive this book, if nothing else, so that you can get some questions answered. And I tell you, this is going to make a difference in your life. I really believe that. Anybody else want to come and receive? I know that you're out there. I know that there's people sitting there that don't speak in tongues. Some of you are afraid. What are you going to do? We're going to pray for you and give you a free book. What a deal. Amen. Not going to do anything bad. I haven't got a church for you to join. I'm not going to have you sign anything. We just want to bless you. I know the first time I ever went to a meeting where they spoke in tongues, I was just afraid that tongues was going to jump on me somehow or another. (laughs) Lord won't make you speak in tongues. It's not going to be something that's bad. It's good. How many of you in here already speak in tongues? Could I see your hands? Would you recommend it? 
It's a good deal. You don't have to be afraid of it. It's a good, good deal. Praise the Lord. All right, before I can pray for you to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you first of all must be born again. The Bible says that Jesus is the one who gives this baptism of the Holy Spirit. So you have to receive the giver before you receive the gift. Is there anybody who's not absolutely sure about whether or not you've made Jesus your personal Lord, whether you've been changed on the heart level? Maybe you're like one of these that I was talking about that just has tried to live good. You've changed the exterior, but you haven't been born again and changed at heart level. Is there anybody who's not sure and you need to pray first to make Jesus your personal Lord? Anybody? Are you... Are you raising your hand or not? You aren't sure? Well, we can pray and make sure. Anybody else? Anybody else? Are you sure? I'm not trying to talk you out of it. You just got to be sure. This is the question. Are you born again? You can shake your head. Yes or no? Amen. All right. Well, we're going we're gonna to pray this prayer. And I'd like you to repeat this after me. And I want everybody to say this so she won't feel like... We're just listening to her. And the scripture says in Romans 10, 9, that if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. He's already forgiven your sin. And now all you got to do is receive it by making him your Lord. Are you willing to do that? So you've done that before, but you aren't sure. Well, you know, here's what the scripture says. It says, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord to save you? Well, he promised that if you did that, you'd be saved. So are you saved? Now, I'm not asking about whether you've fallen or sinned. The scripture says, if you call on the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. Did you do that? Would God lie to you? So are you saved? like that you have some of this day. I hope I'll be able to deal with this sometime tomorrow, but there's some people that think you can be saved. And then every time you sin or fall short, you lose your salvation. That's not what the word of God teaches. If you are ever saved, you're still saved. You do not lose your salvation. There is no such thing as being born again, again. You just get born again one time. So I want you to say, I am saved. Do you really believe that? Amen. All right. So according to the word of God, everybody up here is already born again. And you know what? The scripture says that when you get born again, you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's really important because this is what God created you for. He made you to fill with the power of the Holy Spirit. He never intended for anybody to live a life without the power of the Holy Spirit. So God wants this for you more than you want it. You do not have to wonder, will he give me the Holy Spirit? And there's some people that teach that God won't give you the Holy Spirit unless you're really holy. If you could get holy without the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit. The very fact that you got problems in your life makes you a prime candidate for God filling with his power so that you can begin to start living a godly life. So don't let any sense of unworthiness or I'm not everything that I should be hold you back. That's the reason God wants to give you his power 
so that you can begin to start living under his power and under his ability. So don't let any thought of unworthiness make you feel like God won't give you the Holy Spirit. We're going to ask, and God is going to give you the Holy Spirit. And I'd like to ask our prayer ministers to come up here because the Bible says that you can lay hands on people and they'll receive the Holy Spirit. You can actually release the power of God. So I'm going to ask these people to come stand behind you, and I'm going to lead you in a real simple prayer, and we're just going to open up the door of your temple and say, Holy Spirit, come live on the inside of me. We're going to welcome the power of the Holy Spirit. Then they're going to lay hands on you. And then after they lay hands on you and release the power of God, I want you to quit asking for the Holy Spirit. And instead, just take a step of faith and thank Him, regardless of what you feel like. You don't have to feel anything to get the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? It's a promise. You're going to ask. And He promised He'd give. And so just by faith, start thanking Him and saying, Thank you, Father, that I did receive the Holy Spirit. And as you start thanking the Lord, then I'm going to ask the prayer ministers behind you and everybody here who speaks in tongues to just start worshiping the Lord and speaking in tongues because the Bible says that when you speak in tongues, you're giving thanks. 1 Corinthians 14, 17 says that. So we're going to start thanking God for him giving you the Holy Spirit by us speaking in tongues. And at that time, I want you to quit speaking in English and start speaking in tongues and just start thanking him. And I know that some people, how do you do it? What do you do? I haven't got time to explain the whole thing, but I'm promising you that God is going to give you this ability. The number one thing that people make a mistake on is they wait on the Holy Spirit to just take possession and make them, force them to speak in tongues. It's not like that. I could speak in tongues right now because the Bible says they spoke with tongues as the Spirit gave them the utterance. You have to speak And believe that the Holy Spirit inspires it. It's like when I preach tonight, I believe God spoke through me, but he didn't take my mouth and make it talk. That's the reason it came out in my personality with my sense of humor and stuff. I spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You have to speak and believe that it is the Holy Spirit giving you the utterance. And anyway, I can explain it more in this book, but you have to start saying something. So when we start speaking in tongues, you just need to start making sounds and by faith believe that this is the Holy Ghost. And once you get your mind over the newness of it and the weirdness of it, you'll find out it just flows through you. It's not really you. It is you speaking, but it's the Holy Spirit inspiring it. And uh, it, it is a powerful, powerful gift, but it's a step of faith. Amen. So I'll I'll give you this book that will explain it more. But if you're ready, that's what we're going to do. And you can speak in tongues right now. Isn't that a good deal? This is powerful. It's just like flipping a switch. It turns on the power of the Holy Spirit on the inside of you. Amen. I had a woman come up to me tonight who called into our helpline. Is that lady still here? And received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. She said she always wanted to do it. And somebody just prayed with her real simple. And right over the phone, she started speaking in tongues. That can happen to every single person here, but he's not going to force it. You've got to start speaking and then let him use those things and inspire. Everybody ready? 
Father, I thank you for all of these. Thank you that we are born again. And according to the word of God, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You created us a dwelling place for your Holy Spirit. So we welcome the Holy Spirit right now. Holy Spirit, we want you to come live on the inside of us, to give us this gift of speaking in tongues and other gifts. We want your power. So we open up the doors of this temple and say, come Holy Spirit, fill us right now in the mighty name of Jesus. We lay hands on you now and say, receive the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. We loose this power in you. Holy Spirit, we welcome your power and authority flowing in every one of these people right now and just filling them to overflowing with the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the power of God right here flowing in your life. Father, we thank you that you give everyone the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to start thanking God. Let's put your hands in the air. Just like when somebody sticks a gun in your back and you go, I yield, I surrender. I want you to yield to God and just begin to thank him that he gave you the Holy Spirit. I don't care what you feel like. Take a step of faith and believe that his word is true. Thank you, Father, for giving me the Holy Spirit. Thank you that your power resides on the inside of me, that I am filled with your love, with your power, with these gifts of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. And those of you who know how to pray in tongues, let's just begin to worship the Lord and speak in tongues. And as we speak in tongues, you speak with us. Just begin to speak. You can't speak in tongues with your mouth closed. You're going to have to open your mouth and start making sounds. You can't speak in tongues in English at the same time. You're going to have to say something that you don't understand. You know, if you don't know what to say, you can try and say what you hear somebody behind you saying, but your tongue is going to be unique to you. It's not going to be the same as theirs. But once you start trying, once you start making sense, just keep going and you'll find out it just flows out of you. It's the Holy Spirit giving you a unique language to pray. Thank you, Jesus. Sister, the power of God is just setting you free. And the anointing of God is all over you. God's cleansing you right now of all kinds of stuff. And Satan has been trying to destroy your life. Here's the power of God setting you free right now. Thank you, Jesus. Just pray right now. Speak out. That's it. Just speak. Praise God. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your power flowing in every one of these. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Let me have your attention here for just a minute. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you know, whether you spoke in tongues or not, I believe that God gave you the Holy Spirit because he promised he would. When I first prayed for it, it took me three and a half years to speak in tongues, but that's because I was a Baptist. And I had been told that this was of the devil and I had so much fear in me, it just hindered me. But I finally got my questions answered. I've written it in a book 
And what happened to you tonight is really important. Some of you may not feel a bit different. You might have been looking for some kind of great experience. And you know what? It is a great experience, but it doesn't always have great feelings to go with it. When I received the Holy Spirit, I didn't feel a thing. I had to take it by faith. And I had to say that I believe I'm received because I prayed and believers will speak with new tongues. And I just did it. But you know what? Over the years, I've come to realize this was one of the greatest things that's ever happened. You have to have understanding of what's happened for it to have its full benefit. And I've written a book on this that will explain the whole thing. And I'd like to give every one of you a copy because it's really important that you understand what happened to you. So it's my gift to you. And I'd like to ask you to just uh, go with Robert here and he's going to take you to our prayer room for just a few moments. They'll give you this book. If any of you have any questions, they'll answer your questions and pray with you. So if you would, just follow Robert. He's the one with the Bible in the air. And he will give you this book and help you. Praise God. Let's praise God for all of these. Isn't this great? Thank you, Jesus. God bless you. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Appreciate all of y'all standing around. Apparently, you already have the uh, you're born again, and you have the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and yet you stay around to hear me do the same thing with people. But that's important. Praise God! Isn't that great to see people come to know the Lord and receive the power of the Holy Spirit? Thank you, Jesus. There was only 120 people on the day of Pentecost to start the whole thing. And we've now had over 120 people receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit right here. Man, that could cause a tidal wave. It goes all throughout the world. These are our prayer ministers here. These are people that have been through a training. They aren't going to beg God for your healing. They're going to take their authority and speak directly to the problem. They know how to pray. And as you heard Ashley and Carly testify, we've already seen some great miracles happen. And we can minister to every person in here tonight if you will let these pray for you. And so I'd like to encourage you, if you want prayer for anything, please come and let one of our prayer ministers pray for you right now. Just get up out of your seat and come forward. And we're going to pray a prayer of faith. They can give you more time than if everybody was to line up and make me be the one to pray for every person. And it's Jesus, the one that does the healing. And I believe we're going to see awesome miracles and people set free. If you want prayer, come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers just lay hands on you and pray for you. Praise the Lord. Rest of you are welcome to stay and pray with us. Last night I called out some healings. We had some people that instantly saw a manifestation of healing. And you're welcome to stay and pray. If you need to go, you're free to go. Remember that we have CDs and DVDs of the three services are already made. Tonight's message has already been recorded. And you can get that out there along with all of the other materials. Tomorrow, our services are going to be 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. Remember that we start at 6. We do that so that my crew can tear down all of our equipment and get to bed before 3 in the morning. And so we start one hour earlier. So remember that tomorrow, 6 o'clock instead of 7 o'clock. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah.
Father, we just thank you for every one of these. And we know that you love us, that you are love. And that you bore our sicknesses and our diseases. And that, Father, it is your will for every single person to be well. So we stand here as your ministers. And we just release that healing to flow through every single person, regardless of what's wrong. Thank you, Father, for deaf ears being open, blind eyes being open, people coming out of wheelchairs, all sickness and all disease leaving people. There's some people sitting out there that you just are kind of watching and you're thinking, I'm not... You believe that God can heal, but you've been prayed for before and you just don't feel like doing it again. What's the use? You know, God is encouraging you right now that he loves you and you don't ever need to give up. You don't ever need to accept this sickness and just put up with it. Man, you need to resist it. Maybe you've been prayed for before, but you need to keep standing. You need to believe that God is healing you. The Lord is just speaking encouragement to you right now. Not to quit on your healing, not to give up. Somebody's thinking, but isn't it unbelief for me to go and get prayer again? It depends on what you're thinking. If you're thinking, well, I'm not healed yet. Nothing has worked. So I'll go see if maybe it'll work this time. That's unbelief. But if you're saying, I know that God has healed me, I know that he's given me this, and I'm just wanting agreement to draw out the power of God and to see this healing that is rightfully mine manifest. If you're doing it with that attitude, you can let people lay hands on you until they rub all the hair off the top of your head. Amen. (laughs) It's okay. It just depends how you're looking at it. When I go to get prayer, I'm not discounting the prayer I've already prayed. I'm just saying, agree with me. And stand with me and we're going to see this physical healing manifest. I believe that that's a word from the Lord. And there's somebody here that just wasn't going to receive prayer. You aren't, you're tired of standing and believing. And you know what? God's encouraging you. You ought to come out into the aisle. You ought to let someone lay hands on you and agree with you. Thank you, Father. Father, we agree and we receive that. We receive every single one of these people being healed right now. There's a person here that has these bumps, knots all over them, like uh, fatty tissue type things on your body. And you just have these lumps all over different places on your body. Here's the healing power of God flowing right now. And I believe that God is dissolving those lumps that are all over your body. God's setting you free. If that's you, I want you to stand and identify yourself by raising your hand so I can see who I'm praying for. Here's some people right here. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you. I believe that that's a word from you. That that's what your spirit is doing. I thank you that you are touching these people right now. And I command those little lumps all over their body to be gone. Whatever causes that, loose them and let them go. Lumps you get off of their body now in the name of Jesus. And Father, I release your healing power to restore, to get rid of that stuff out of their body. And that their flesh becomes just totally normal. Thank you, Jesus. Right now, we receive it. That was a word from God for you. I believe that that's a done deal. Father, we agree and we receive it. And thank you that this is over in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Right now, I just want you to thank him and believe that God has set you free. 
Somebody here has been having a problem with your jaw. I don't know if that's TMJ, but you just had pain in your jaw. There could be different things that cause it. Maybe you've had tooth problems or whatever, but if you've got pain in your jaw, here's the healing power of God coming unto you. Who's that that has this pain in your jaw? I want you to stand and raise your hand so I can see who this is. Over here, here's some people. Thank you, Father. In the name of Jesus, Father, whatever's causing this pain in their jaw, I just release the anointing of God and speak healing unto them. Now, in Jesus' name, pain, leave them. Any damage that was done under their jaw, under their teeth, whatever it is, we speak healing. Pain, you be gone. Healing, you come now. Thank you, Father. Well, there's a healing power of Jesus flowing in your body. And I believe that that's healed right now in Jesus' name. Somebody's esophagus. You've been having problems with that. You've had a herniated esophagus, a rupture in your esophagus. Here's the healing power of God right now. Also, like acid reflux, just all kinds of things dealing with your esophagus. Here's the healing power of Jesus right now flowing. If that's you, I want you to stand. Raise your hand so I can see who this is. Praise God. Here's some people here. Anybody else? Somebody down here. Praise the Lord. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just release your anointing right now. And whatever's wrong, a herniated esophagus, acid reflux, whatever this is, I release the healing power of God. And esophagus, you be healed. Right now, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Right there's the healing power of God. I believe that any pain or discomfort is gone right now. You can physically feel the power of God flowing in your body. Here's your healing power right now. Father, we thank you that it's a done deal. That we're healed from this time forth. Our esophagus is healed in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you, Jesus. Well, here's a number of people that are being healed in your hearing right now. I'm assuming that you have partial hearing since we don't have an interpreter for the deaf or you wouldn't know what I'm saying. But if you've got a hearing loss, partial, one ear, whatever it is, if you've got hearing problems, I want you to stand and raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you. And I believe deaf ears are opening. Thank you, Jesus. Right here is the healing power of God right now. You know, I want to ask those of you that are standing with your hand up for this prayer. I want you to look around and see somebody that's got their hand up. And I want those of you around them to lay hands on them. And I'm going to speak and you release this power into them. And we're going to see their ears open right now. Deafness in the name of Jesus, we break your power and we command a spirit of deafness to leave these people right now. Be gone. Ears, you be healed now in Jesus' name. Here's somebody with nerve deafness and that nerve is coming back to life right now. It's beginning to work. Here's your hearing coming now in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. There's somebody who's got all kinds of static and um, I forget what you call that, but you've got noises bother you. Here's the healing power of God flowing through your ears right now. 
and all of that noise and static and problems are gone right now. Ringing in the ears, command it to leave. Father, I release your healing power to flow and ears you be healed right now in the name of Jesus. There's the anointing power of the Holy Spirit flowing. Father, I thank you that right now they open up. Ears you open right now. Hear properly right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Well, that's a power of God. I believe that ears are opening right now. I believe you're able to hear. If you were deaf like in one ear, plug up your good ear and start listening through the bad ear. I think you're going to be able to tell a difference. The volume's going up. Right now, Father, we thank you for this healing manifesting itself right this moment. Ears you hear in Jesus' name. Boy, that's powerful. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I was in Phoenix and a friend of mine was nearly totally deaf. And he had hearing aids in. And even with the hearing aids, he was struggling to hear anything. He was getting to where he was having to read people's lips. And I called this out and there was like 30 people that stood for hearing problems. And he said he didn't hear anything right then, but he went to bed. And the next morning he went for a walk and he usually doesn't put his hearing aids in on the walk. And he was walking and all of a sudden realized he could hear the crickets and he could hear things. And the next morning his ears were totally restored. Isn't that awesome? And I believe that God is doing the same for you. I believe that the word of faith has been spoken over you. And I want you right now to just begin to praise God. Speak in tongues. Thank him for your healing. And I believe that those ears are opening up. That deafness is gone and hearing is coming. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you, Jesus. We agree and we receive it. Praise God. Here's the Lord healing people that have problems in your shoulders. You can't lift your arms like this, or if you do, it causes pain. Here's the healing power of God flowing into you. I believe that God is healing these shoulders, rotator cuffs, whatever it is that causes that. If you're one of those that has the shoulder problems, I want you to stand and raise your hand or raise it as high as you can. Here's the healing power of God flowing towards you right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just speak healing into these shoulders. Whatever damage has been done, I speak healing over them. Shoulders, you be healed right now. Pain, leave them and let them go. I command complete freedom of movement into these shoulders now in the mighty name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now begin to move your arms around. Do what you didn't feel like doing. Here's the healing power of God flowing in your body. Father, we receive this. Thank you, Father, for setting us free. Hallelujah. Who in here had pain before we prayed and your pain is already gone? You're able to move. Here's a lady right here. Here's another one. Here's two more over here. Anybody else? Here's another one. There's four, five. You know what? If God healed five of you, he healed all of you. It's a done deal. You just keep acting on this and stand on it and believe that you are healed. And that power is manifesting itself. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we agree and we receive these healings now in the mighty name of Jesus. 
believe that there's a lot of people in here being healed of arthritis and pain in your joints. If that's you, if you've got arthritis, I want you to stand and raise your hand. Here's the healing power of God right now. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I agree with all of these people right now. And in the name of Jesus, arthritis, you leave them right now. Be gone out of their body. We break your power. Loose them and let them go now in Jesus' name. Right there it is. That was a demonic power and it left you. Arthritis has left the building in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Now, Father, we loose your anointing to flow into their body and repair these joints and the damage that arthritis did. Inflammation, swelling, deformity of joints. I just speak to these joints and you be healed now and receive this healing power of God. Pain, you leave them right now. Begin to start moving and doing what you didn't feel like doing. Move the part of your body that was hurting and was stiff. And right now, the healing power of God is flowing through you. And Father, I thank you that there is freedom of movement, no pain. All pain gone off of them right now in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father, that this is gone and it's not coming back. Thank you, Father, for healing us by your stripes. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we agree and receive that in Jesus' name. Who in here had pain before we prayed and your pain's already gone? Here's three people right here, four people, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. You know why you don't have any pain? Because you were healed. It's not a coincidence. And you know what? If you ever have another pain, it doesn't mean that you weren't healed. What it is, Satan knows that I mean what I say. So I rebuke it. He leaves. But then when you're by yourself, he may come back and give you a pain. He can do that. He can hit you with the pain. It's just like a knock on the door. And if you respond and say, oh, no, I wasn't healed or, oh, no, I lost it, then you just opened up the door and let him in. But all you got to do is say, look, I believe this. In the name of Jesus, pain, you get out of my body and you speak just the way I did. And he may knock once or twice, but he'll leave you alone. You've been healed. It's not coincidence and you can stand on it. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Amen. Praise God. Isn't this awesome? I talked to a woman out there tonight that I think it was five or six years ago. I prayed with her and she had really severe arthritis and she's never had any more arthritis. And so praise God. I believe that what God gave you tonight, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. I believe that you're healed and you're staying healed. Don't let it back in. Thank you, Father. Father, we thank you for all of these healings. Thank you, Father, for touching people's lives. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing our sickness and diseases. And I pray that there's not a single person that leaves here with some type of infirmity, sickness. Father, we just open up our hearts and receive right now. Thank you, Jesus.
You know, I feel like there's just a lot of people receiving right now. If you've got any type of sickness, pain, problem, whether I've called it out or not, I want you to just stand right now and we're just, we're going to release the power of God. I believe all kinds of things are going to be healed. You know, we can stay here hour upon hour upon hour trying to call out everything individually, or you can just receive right now and believe that God is healing you from your head to your toes. Lay hands on yourself, amen, and speak the word of God. Father, in the name of Jesus, we release your supernatural power. We believe that by your stripes, we were healed, that you've already provided it that you put this raising from the dead power on the inside of us. And right now we release this power with our words. Proverbs 18, 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. So we release the power of our words and we speak death to you, sickness, death to demonic things, death to infirmity in our bodies, death to cancer, death to gross death to infection. In the name of Jesus, we command those things to die, to get out of us and to be gone now in Jesus' name. And we release life with our words. We thank you that life is flowing through us from our head down to our toe, that the life of the Holy Spirit is flowing right now, that wounds are healing that things that have been broken are being healed. We thank you that health is flowing through us right now. Thank you that the damage that was done by sickness, by doctors, by medication is being healed right now in the name of Jesus. That parts of our body are recovering. Thank you, Father, that we are healthy. That we are going to live and not die and declare the works of the Lord. Thank you, Father, for your power flowing in us right now. We speak life over us and release that authority and command those sicknesses out of our body right now in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we speak it and we doubt not in our heart. Father, even if we feel something contrary to what we've prayed, we believe that your power is flowing in us right now. And from this moment on, our bodies are recovering. If we get a report from a doctor contrary to what we believe, we believe your report. We believe that we are healed and we stand on this. And Father, we pray for that man who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We ask you for your mercy and your grace and your help over any unbelief that we may have in our body. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Now I want you to just begin to thank God. Praise God. Just as if you could see or feel what it is that you were praying for. Just begin to thank him like you really believe that by his stripes you were healed. Just give him thanks right now. Father, we thank you. We agree and we receive this. And thank you that we are healed. We were healed. We are healed. It's a done deal. And we aren't moving off of our confession of faith. We believe that it's a done deal. Father, we agree and we thank you. We receive it in Jesus' mighty name. Hallelujah. Amen. Oh, I believe a lot of miracles just took place. Thank you, Father. We thank you, Father, for being present with us. 
Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy on us, and we receive it. Thank you for it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Awesome. That's wonderful. Man, I believe a lot of people have been set free tonight. Not only in your physical body, but in your emotions, understanding the love of God. Maybe you've understood the goodness of God in a way that you never had before. Praise God. I think it's going to make a difference. Amen. Well, you're dismissed. We'll see you in the morning. If you if you still need prayer, our prayer ministers, we've got a few open. We'll be here to pray with you until we get every person covered. God bless you. We'll see you in the morning. Amen.